0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November of last year.
1: Welcome now to Access Utah. Julie Berry is the award winning author of books for young adults and children. Her books include Lovely War, All the Truth That's In Me, The Passion of Dulce, The Scandalous Sisterhood of Prickwill of Place, and Happy Right Now, among other uh, titles. Julie Berry grew up in Western New York holds a Bachelor's of Science from Rensselaer in Communications, MFA from Vermont College, lives now in Southern California with her husband and uh, four sons. You can find her at julieberrybooks.com. Julie Berry, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
1: Good good to have you on. We uh, we had you on about four years ago with uh, your book, The Passion of Dulce, and uh, we, we want to take the opportunity to have you on here with this event coming up, and of course several books since then, and Others that we could talk about. I want to start with uh, COVID nineteen. What's uh, how's your family dealing with the pandemic there in uh, in California? Right.
2: We are yes. Uh, I do have my oldest son who now lives uh, back east. We're all kind of moving along. You know, um, the school studies have all been virtual where we are. So my high schooler is doing all of his learning from home. I have two kids who've been in college, and their classes are entirely online, so they're at home, um, and then those that have jobs, you know, they just go and they wear their masks and their protective gear, and uh, so far, so good. I don't believe any of us have gotten the, the virus, or if we did, we didn't know it. So I imagine there are a lot of us in the country in that situation wondering if, you know, Some mild cold symptoms might have been, you know, the virus or or if we were just imagining it. Do you find that you start to get really sensitive? Like if you feel a tickle in your throat, you're like, oh, gosh, this is it. Do you feel that uh, way too?
1: Yes, definitely, especially early on. I I did every little tickle. (laughs) uh, That's what I thought. I I kind of, maybe I've become a nerd to it or something later on. I just, uh, (laughs) I, I don't feel that way as much anymore. But, yeah, certainly, certainly early on. Uh so California uh, there was a time when uh, things were pretty serious in California. I'm not sure how they are now.
2: That's right. It, it was it was really bad here at one point and you know it's it's kind of been interesting to watch that sort of ebb and flow of of cases in different parts of the country and it it has it's been in constant flux, right? You know you will get an area that's very cautious, very careful and um the case count will be very low and then at some point you sort of ease off and and sort of inch back toward, well, not normalcy, but, you know, a little bit more movement and activity. And, and then here come the cases, and, and then you kind of dial it back in again. The, the problem, I think, of course, I'm not an expert on this, but the problem is the will to keep on being vigilant, right? It's hard. It's exhausting. We're, we're tired of it. We're, we're used to it. Isn't that bizarre? We are used to a pandemic that has killed nearly a quarter of a million Americans. We are used to the daily death counts that were so astonishing to us when this all began. And I constantly try to remind myself, must not get used to this, right? Don't ever become callous to this kind of, of pain and loss. But, but that's kind of human nature. We do, we just get used to things.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say human nature, right? But but uh, yeah, guard against it, because approaching, you know, heading toward 300,000 deaths, That's that's not something that we should accept lightly, right?
2: No, no, certainly not. There's a, there's a family uh, at the other end of every one of those, and, and there are people that are in terrible mourning. And, uh, you know, we're fortunate if that hasn't been us, but we, we can't forget.
1: So I want to talk about uh, how children are dealing with this. Of course, you have teenagers now, right? But um, mm-hmm. you, you do a lot of events. I think that right now you're doing those events with schools by Zoom, right? Um, That's right. Um, and maybe a way to get into this is your book, Happy Right Now. Um. So you know, which is a picture book, talks about dealing with Mm -hmm. emotions. Of course, in the title, you're happy right now. You could be sad later. It's it's okay to feel all these emotions, right? I think the message of the book.
2: That's right. You know, the book came out last fall, and of course, I had no idea what was what was right around the corner in the world. But it was oddly timely, and and you know, the the idea for the book began. I was working with Sounds True and they are a publisher that that looks at sort of spirituality and 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 not so much, you know, like denominational religion but just um you know mind body spirit soul types of 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 books and material and and so they had approached me about doing a picture book with them and and I was trying to think, you know, what message did I have to impart to young people and and the thing that I thought about was how how much of my life I have spent thinking I'll be happy if such and such happens, or I'll be happy when this goal is finally achieved, or this problem is finally resolved. And you know, as I look back, I realize what a wasted opportunity that was to to not just embrace each moment for what it was and and choose what happiness I could. And, and which is not to say that you know we can always put a Pollyanna smile on on. The, terrible situation but 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 most of the time we can choose more happiness than we tend to and so i, I approached them about that idea and they they were very enthusiastic about it and and uh, the, the book was illustrated by holly haddam who is a new york times best-selling illustrator of the dear girl and dear boy books and uh, so it came out last fall and, and that was great and then of course the pandemic struck and schools and and educators and principals and librarians were looking for books to share with their students who, and we were all reeling, right? Especially kids. We had no context for this, this, this this shutting down of the world was such a shock to all of us, but especially to young people who, who need to get out and have those, you know, sports and music and school experiences. Um, and so it was, it was interesting to see and, and, gratifying to see that this little, little idea that I'd had, um, could meet this moment and could provide some help and comfort to to kids and and fit right in with that sort of um, mindfulness and emotional intelligence curriculum that, that schools are implementing and were before this began, but I think all the more so now. We actually have a second book coming out next spring called Cranky Right Now. <laughs> so I think you can connect the dotted lines pretty well, but it's been a delight to to share these picture books with the world. <laughs>
1: One of the pages, I believe, but I'll just read this. I'll be happy when I get a puppy, a unicorn, an ice cream sundae, and a castle with a friendly dragon. Or I can be happy right now, <laughs> which is which is <laughs> which is great. We can we can choose, right? Uh, and it's <laughs> important to teach kids that, right? Important to teach ourselves that, especially during something oh, like sure. pandemic.
2: For sure. I, I, I write these books for myself, right? So they're, they're the sermons that I need to hear <laughs> on a daily basis. Yeah. Quit complaining. <laughs>
1: uh, one thing, I don't know, again, dealing with children, but also with ourselves, is, I guess, naming the emotion, right? Understanding the emotion, accepting the emotion, not, you know, just admitting that you're feeling it, right?
2: It's so true, right? When we feel something, you know, it's, it's just kind of the soup that we're in. And and perhaps we reducing somewhat when we stick a label on them but we also create a means of talking to others about them and and you know being able to to find some some empathy and some understanding. You know, I I'm, I'm feeling very anxious today. I'm feeling very stressed about the future. I feel very nervous and worried about the world and about, you know, what covid is, is doing to my life and and you know whether i'm ever going to get to do the things i want to do again but if i can label that if i can say i'm feeling anxious then we can maybe go to our parents or our friends or or a teacher or a loved one and say i'm feeling really anxious today and then and then that person can can respond with their own experiences of anxiety and or, or you know whatever it might be i'm i'm feeling depressed today i'm feeling angry today and we can all you know, find some common ground. And and that alone is so cathartic. You know, just I, I think usually we don't so much need to be told what to do or how we ought to feel so much as we need to be heard in the feeling that we're having right now. We just need someone that understands.
1: Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to delve into a little bit of your, uh, your, your past, your background, um, and uh, jump into some of your books and, of course, talk about writing historical fiction more following this.
0: Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Idaho National Laboratory. Celebrating Women's History Month throughout March, INL values the many contributions that women make at the lab and in the community. More information on inclusive careers is available at INL.gov.
3: I am Dr. Susan Madsen, director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project with ideas for becoming more resilient. We often think of confidence as confidence is how we look, act, and carry ourselves in front of others. However true confidence is internal. It is demonstrated in our thought patterns and how we respond to situations. It can also play a pivotal role in building resilience. When you do hard things, you gain confidence. This confidence can also assure you of your ability to conquer the next hard thing that comes along. Or in other words, it helps you build resilience. Confidence is not just thinking about things. It can only be strengthened by doing. Research has shown that confidence is truly a choice. We can choose to change our assumptions, perspectives, thoughts, and behaviors. Confidence is something we can learn and actively work to develop. Confidence can be developed by taking risks, getting comfortable with failing more often, practicing self-compassion, discovering gifts and strengths, increasing self-understanding, finding your passions and voice, learning and growing continuously, and serving others. Next time you find yourself in a difficult situation, Try practicing self-compassion, bouncing back from mistakes and failures, and remembering that you have already made it through many challenging situations in the past, and you can do it again.
4: This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November of last year.
1: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're spending the hour with writer Julie Berry. She's the award-winning author of books for young adults and children. Books include Lovely War, All the Truth Is in Me, Passion of Dolce, Scandalous Sisterhood at Prickville Place, and Happy Right Now, among other titles. Uh so Julie Berry, you have an interesting background. It sounds idyllic. I guess maybe it's just normal to you, right? Uh, you're uh, youngest child of a per- fairly big uh, family, fifty acre farm in western uh, New York. Uh, so, growing your own food, harvesting eggs from your own turk, uh, your own uh, chickens, <laughs> kept various, uh, you know, various uh, animals.
2: It was it. It was a really lovely childhood, and. Uh, you know, perhaps I didn't always fully appreciate that at the time, but but I look back today and realize how lucky I was to be a child in a fairly pre-digital world. You know, um, we had television. We had three channels. We did not yet have cable. I remember, you know, VCRs first appearing on the scene the Betamax. I remember, you know, our first compact right. discs. Um, and so, you know, I lived a childhood that was... Um, IRL, right? In real life, it was an analog life. It was a life where we, you know, I went outside all the time and I watched the flowers grow and, and, you know, went and watched the minnows swim by in the creek. And of course, you know, I watched foolish cartoons and squabbled with my sisters. I mean, it's very easy to make things sound idyllic and, you know, overlook the the cat litter box or whatever, (laughs) the things that make life (laughs) ordinary and mundane. Mm -hmm. But I, I look at children today and, you know, I've tried so hard to give my children something like that as well, but as soon as you hand them a smartphone and at some point you often feel that you need to, uh, it's over, you know, and now you're competing with um, a very well-oiled machine of of digital distractions um, that are, you know, often valuable information or funny or entertaining information, but uh, it it, it grieves me to see um, how much time young people spend in front of a little screen instead of, you know, moving, breathing, <laughs> well, hopefully they're breathing, <laughs> but, you know, just kind of getting outdoors and, and um, playing with other kids in, in, you know, face-to-face. Well, there again, that's problematic now. Yeah. So here we are.
0: Yeah. Here, here we are.
1: Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, so what did you read growing up?
2: Well, I read, you know, the the classics. My family had a lovely library of, of children's books. Um, I was a big fan of the um, Laura Ingalls Wilder books. I, I kind of felt like I was Laura. You know, I didn't really have the sense that I was reading about something so very long prior, although I knew it was. I mean, we had cars, not horses and buggies. But, you know, the way in which Laura's mother um, sewed her clothing and, and knitted and, and the way they grew their food... Um, that all made sense to me. You know, we, my, my brother hunted and we would eat venison. That all made sense to me. It felt it felt very familiar. Um, I loved the Anne of Green Gables books, A Wrinkle in Time, um, Pippi Longstocking, Heidi, uh, A Little Princess, sort of the, the great classics of the, you know, children's literary tradition in English. Um, I certainly read a lot of mythology and folk tales and fairy tales, legends. And that, to this day, is a, a foundation that I cherish, and I spend a lot of time reading mythology and, and trying to kind of understand what what connects humans across centuries in, these, in the ways in which, you know, we face similar milestones and rites of passage, even though the world does look so different now.
1: Yeah, some things stay the same, right? And that, that's important.
2: It's true. It's true. I, I tell young people all the time that you need to be familiar with the stories and legends and myths of your own cultural background, as well as those of you know, as many other cultures as you can get your hands on, because we have so much to learn from, from these, these stories that the human race has been telling itself for millennia. We have so much to learn about what connects us as humans across cultures and also what makes us unique.
1: Uh, so uh, did you always want to be a writer? I understand that you, you know, you 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 married, uh, had a family and then uh I guess after your fourth child was was born um, said uh, what what was that conversation with you? So what was that decision? Uh, I better do it now kind <laughs> of a thing. What did you what did you think?
2: Sure. Well, so I think I always wished I could be a writer. I you know, as, as a child spending hours reading in the, you know, the, the sofa cushion fort that you make in the living room. Um, I dreamed of being a writer because I thought books were just the most wonderful thing there was, but I didn't take that dream very seriously because to my mind, that was like saying, I want to be a rock star when I grow up. It was just not something that little girls from farm country could do or so I thought. And uh, so I, I, I filed that away in the, you know, implausible file. Um, and I, I was interested in so many things uh, at one point, um, I wanted to be a marine biologist like all the, you know, 11-year-old girls who are in love with dolphins. Um I wanted to be a chemist in high school and I actually went off to an engineering school to to major in chemistry, but I quickly realized that spending my life in a lab was not what I wanted. Um thank goodness for the people who do, especially right now they are our heroes, but I I quickly realized that that my job in the world was to do some of the writing and some of the putting words down on paper. So I ended up majoring in technical communication and spent my sort of career years working in the software industry, um, but I also did get married and have my four kids kind of young, and so I was sort of juggling remote work even back then uh, around, around raising my kiddos. So, um, you know, it's the late 90s when the Harry Potter phenomenon burst upon the scene and and, of course, that was a really exciting moment for children's literature and for children's fantasy. And everyone was talking about this young mom from the U.K. who'd written these books. And that sort of, you know, whetted my appetite once again for that little pet dream of mine. But it never seemed like the right time. And, and the, I felt like I wanted to pursue a degree. I, I didn't think that I could become a writer on my own initiative, but I thought perhaps if it could be taught that I could learn it. And so I I sort of dreamed of an MFA, but I didn't feel that our family could afford that expense. And, you know, there's no guarantee that you'll be able to earn it back with book sales because you don't know if you'll ever publish. Um, But finally there came a point where I realized that, you know, life passes quickly. And I didn't want to be sitting in that, you know, front porch rocking chair someday wondering if only. And I'm married to just a... Prince of a guy who, you know, when he realized that, that this is what I really wanted to do, he said, then you're going to do it. And, uh, you know, notwithstanding my objections about, you know, when will I find the time and where will we find the money, he helped make it happen. And uh, I always joke that the only time that I've ever obeyed my husband was when... <laughs> was on a couple of occasions where I went to him and said, I should quit this. This this is never going to work. And he said, you are not quitting. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very grateful that I uh, obeyed him in those instances. But otherwise, he's never told me what to do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, good to listen to advice (laughs) sometimes. Um, I want to read this. This is from an interview you gave um, uh, that I was reading. And they ask you, uh, what if you had a time machine Go back, go back and talk to the young Julie? I just want to read this verbatim. It's uh, inspirational. You say, I would tell young Julie not to worry if her early stories and poems fell flat or weren't impressive. I would tell her that writing, like any other skill, develops with time and patience, not to let her frustration with poor quality of her best efforts um, deter her from believing in her potential. I would tell her to write freely, boldly, without fear of whatever her creativity might produce and that's the message I try to share with students today you say
2: well thank you for finding that and sharing that I I think I needed to hear that today
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah starting out I imagine you would have some doubts right and 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 maybe early efforts aren't up to par but but having you know having that courage to say well yeah I can get better
2: it's so true and I I find I'm constantly perplexed by this You know, in so many areas of life, we understand that we're going to start off awkwardly and that that proficiency will come. We understand that, you know, when we start walking, we're going to fall a lot and, and look kind of silly. But we encourage our children along. Don't give up. Don't give up. You can do it. Same with riding a bike. Same with learning to swim. Same with learning to shoot hoops. We understand that the body requires time to acquire muscle memory and physical abilities, and yet when it comes to the arts, we somehow have this idea that you've either got it or you haven't. And, and I kind of blame, you know, like American Idol, right, because we have these these children who show up on the show, and they just have these incredible voices, and they belt it out, and and, and it creates this perception that that they, they are the anointed ones, and that this is probably true in writing as well. Um I talk to students of, of all ages, and when I go into fifth grade, I say, Who, who's interested in maybe writing a book or a movie or a TV show someday, maybe a video game, and the kids all raise their hands. And by the time they're in eighth or ninth grade, almost none of them raise their hands. And I believe that's because their early efforts have, you know, have fallen flat or they've they've gotten an awful lot of... They've gotten a bad grade. they've They've had a lot of grammar errors flagged as problematic. And it, it crushes them somehow, and it, it leaves them feeling like they just can't do it. Or maybe the sort of tedium of writing an essay they don't feel like writing turns them off to all writing. So I feel like part of my job is to be a sort of evangelist for storytelling and for trying and trying again and for revision and for the, the idea that, you know, just like shooting hoops, you start badly and you build and you grow. And, and if I could... If I could change the world in that way, I'd, I'd be grateful, because I think we lose the voices of an awful lot of artists and creators who were interested, who have a story to tell, and who have allowed themselves to believe that they're not worthy to tell it, just because they didn't start out, you know, as Hemingway or, you know, Picasso.
1: Uh, so you do uh, school and library visits, I know, it's on your website, and I guess Zoom these days, right? That's how you're doing that. Um, but but right. kind of the, the the slogan at the top here, igniting in kids a hunger to read more and the courage to write more. Uh, are kids are kids reading these days as much as they did in the past? And are they are they writing? Are they having pleasure in that?
2: I think that educators, certainly the ones that I interact with, are are very keen to keep that alive and flourishing in kids. And I think they're. They're doing a lot to stimulate more creative writing. I see uh, teachers and librarians going to great lengths to put books into kids' hands, especially now. I have a friend whose family started a, a, a bookmobile and got a van donated, and they're literally dropping off armfuls of books to all the, the kids in their school each week. It's, it's amazing. And I see other schools where uh, the, the librarians and, and teachers are working to get a hold of ebooks. So that they can distribute books electronically to kids, and I think that kids are still reading, and perhaps e-books are sort of meeting them where they're at. Right, they're on their devices; they can read their stories. So I, I certainly don't think that they are that, that reading and writing are are going away. But I do think that they need they need some emphasis. I I never met an author until I was in college. I, I <laughs> the thought of you know meeting one as a kid, what that would have done for me. Um, it motivates me. Every time I visit with a school, I I hope that I can demystify the process for them. I hope that I can show them that, you know, there's no difference between growing up to be a a lawyer, a doctor, a nurse, a teacher, a a business person, or a writer. It's just another professional option out there, and and they can certainly try it, too.
1: If you just joined us, we're talking with Julie Berry, award-winning author of books for young adults and children. Uh, You can find her at julieberrybooks.com. And she's uh, giving a workshop, a virtual workshop, on writing historical fiction for the Provo City Library and the King's English Bookshop. That's this evening at 7 o'clock. It's virtual, it's free, and uh, you need to register. You can go to the Provo City Library website to do that, provolibrary.com, and click on the the event. Uh, Julie Berry, I want to jump into writing historical uh, fiction um so maybe we can start with uh lovely war uh this was was this last year published last year
2: that's right last yeah, spring
1: last spring uh so lovely war uh and we talked about you know myths and so you're you know very very briefly i'll have you flesh this out um you you bring mythology to world war one um so, but anyway that, that's a very bad description uh, give me a better one
2: <laughs> sure So Lovely War is two love stories set during World War I as told to us by Greek gods who are gathered in a Manhattan hotel room during World War II. It's sort of unusual premise, but uh, the the way that it begins is... um, (laughs) Well, I'll, I'll preface this with a little story from the Odyssey. So in the Odyssey, there's a mention of Hephaestus, the god of the forges, who is married to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and he is jealous of how his wife <clears throat> excuse me, um, prefers the company of his brother, Ares, the god of war. And so they are a couple, you might say, and um, Hephaestus has had enough, and so he goes to his forge and he fashions a cunning golden net that he uses to set a trap to catch the cheating pair, and when he's caught them, he takes them to Mount Olympus and humiliates them in front of the other gods. Well, I decided to set that scene in a Manhattan hotel room, and instead of taking Ares and Aphrodite to Mount Olympus, they stay there. Aphrodite sort of bargains with her husband that they can sort of settle this matter privately. So she is effectively put on trial right there in a little kangaroo court right in that hotel room, put on trial for infidelity. And in a way, she's being called upon to answer the question, why are love and war eternally drawn to one another? Why Why this connection? Where, where's the chemistry here? And to explain herself and explain her purpose and, and her work and to sort of defend the validity of what she does as the so-called frivolous goddess of love, she tells these two stories, which were set in the previous war. And one of the reasons why I did World War One and World War Two was I wanted to kind of Establish some of the filaments that connect World War One and World War Two. Most notably f- for me, uh, as I as I did my research and realized that the generation that survived World War One, that came home and got married and had children and raised them up to adulthood, literally raised them up just in time to feed them into the mouth of another European global war. And you know when when parents sent their soldier boys off to World War one they at least had the benefit of not knowing fully what they were getting into. They at least were, were innocent of, of full comprehension. But the generation that lived through World War One knew exactly what they were going through. And I can barely, you know, give my kids the key to the car to let them drive a mile down the street without a little flutter of fear. But imagine imagine living through those trenches and then having to send your sons overseas. So I wanted to kind of show that intergenerational aspect of how these two wars connect and how, how the people that survived the First World War had to pay this terrible price again. It's unspeakable. It's unspeakable to me.
1: Yeah, it, uh, it, it's just incredible. World War I, you know, an entire generation of young men uh, lost. You know, or almost right. an entire generation. You write in a blog post, uh, which by the way you can find uh, Julie Berry's blog at julieberrybooks.com. World War One's not fun to think about, so we don't, you say. Uh, another factor you it's say true. is is the photos there in black and white. And so that there that, that produces a gulf as well.
2: It's true. I, I think that we can care more about the past to, in proportion to how clearly we can see it. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we talk more about World War II than about World War I. And obviously, like, World War II is, you know, closer to living memory. We still have people alive who lived through it, although, you know, an ever-dwindling number. But I think that, um anytime we, ha- we don't have pictures, we don't have footage, or what we have is very grainy and, and, you know, poor quality, I think we, we lose empathy. Accordingly, Which is why I think it's so interesting what Peter Jackson has done in um, they, Shall, they Shall Never Grow Old, um, or They Shall Not Grow Old, that he has used digital technology to restore that footage to what feels more real and vivid to us, you know, added color. And I think that that, that does an awful lot to sort of bring breathe new life into... This story. I think another reason why we don't talk as much about World War One in this country is because our involvement in it was was much later and proportionately lesser than you know our involvement in World War Two, and so it doesn't it doesn't make quite the same you know heroic narrative that we like to tell, and it also is a sloppy story. In when we tell the the tale of World War Two, we can reduce it down to a sort of clear villain, you know a Clear moral imperative of an evil that had to be stopped. We can we can portray ourselves as, as righteous in, in coming in and, and doing what we did. and I'm not trying to trivialize what we did. It, it was a heroic sacrifice on the part of so many and it you know I, I do believe the cause was just nevertheless, World War II is just ideally suited for storytelling, whereas World War I is a mess. yeah why it, why it started, why it was allowed to happen, how it dragged on the way it did, is a global embarrassment. And so we turn our eyes away.
1: What was, by the way, what was the the research you did? I imagine you went and found, um, you know, not only the overall context, the overall history, but, but perhaps individual stories of individual soldiers.
2: Sure, yes. Well, you know, after a sort of initial period of just trying to understand the the landscape of the war and why it happened and when and who the players were, I turned my attention to what I'll call social history. And so in that regard, I'm looking and searching for journals, diaries, letters, firsthand accounts as close to the moment of, of the action as possible. And then where those sort of failed me, then I looked to memoirs and autobiographies, which are still firsthand but written, you know, from the vantage point of a much later time, and, and you know, from there, digging into primary source records like military records and you know draft cards and you know all kinds of very minute specifics about nursing and ragtime music and uh, you know volunteer women and the Y M C A and race and segregation in America. So it's kind of there started to be these filaments going in in every direction as I narrowed in on. The specific kind of people and the specific kinds of problems that i wanted to be writing about so sort of begin with a global like what happened here and then drill down into the the more you know character specific kinds of questions but it was a joy it was an honor to research world war one and yet it was and i I think of it as a, a sort of sacred privilege to get to know these lives and 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 to to fall in love with real humans who lived through it um but it is painful It's it, because, I mean, it's kind of like we were talking about before with COVID, right? When you're talking about numbers of maybe 10 million killed, maybe 20, our brain cannot wrap itself around numbers like that. But I have four sons of military age, and I can wrap my mind clearly around what it would do to me to lose them. And that is not an image I want to dwell on because it's too horrifying. But it was all too real. And when I went to France and visited the cemeteries there and saw just the thousands of stones upon stones row upon row, uh, and, and realized that under each one was some mother's son and some maybe some girl's sweetheart, I just I, I just found it so shattering. It, you know you, you have to look, you have to weep, but you also kind of want to turn your head away. I was especially struck by the, the, the reverence that is shown in Europe to the memory of World War One, and the huge numbers of people who turned out regularly to visit these memorials and these, these sites that commemorate World War One dead. That they have not forgotten, and I think that, that we probably stand to, to learn something in the United States from, from the respect and honor and memory that is so carefully preserved in Europe. For World War One fallen,
1: do, do you think I? I, I think it is uh, true that we. It's not as present for us. Maybe because it happened there.
2: It, absolutely right, yeah. far away, and that that yeah. it always allows you to distance yourself.
1: <laughs> uh, I wonder uh, what. Uh, talk to me about the value of history and and putting this into, of course, at the forefront. The young adults reading this, or adults, you know, whoever's reading. Lovely War, um, you know, has the story at the forefront. But of course, this is historical fiction. You got World War One, World War Two. Um, what are you wanting readers to to take away? What are you hoping to accomplish with that part of it?
2: Sure. Well, I I mean, I always start out really just hoping to tell a great story. Really just hoping to entertain my reader. And I don't, you know, I don't look down my nose at that word at all. I I feel like if I can provide Really satisfying diversion. I, I can, you know, lift some of the stresses of the day off your shoulders with a, a good tale that you can escape into. Then, then I've done my job, and I am and I am honored. Um, so, so that's always how it begins. And I usually, I, I write a lot of historical fiction, not solely historical, but largely. And I tend to go there just because that's where my imagination goes. I, I sometimes think that I like live in the wrong century; that I sort of belong in the past. Although the reality is, I'm grateful for modern medical care and sanitation and all those things. Mm-hmm. But um, so that's, it's just where my mind goes. And so it's just kind of what I produce, like in the way that, you know, Stephen King's mind just produces horror and that's his gift to the world. And, you know, it's, it's, it's what he produces. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, it's really more after the fact that I'm able to step back and say, you know, what did this? historical perspective add, you know, I don't, I don't go into it thinking I'll add historical vitamins to my story for any, like, beneficial purpose, but, but you know, afterwards, I can certainly see that, um, I, I believe, for me, it, it helps me to know um, how much we share with, with those that are simply names in our, in our genealogy now. I wrote Lovely War in part to try to understand what life might have been like for my two grandmothers who I never really knew all that well because they were so much older than me. I'm the you know, the caboose kid of a big family and my parents were sort of later kids, so my grandparents were much, much older than me. And I never really knew them as people and, and they're long gone. But I'd like to have known them now. And so I wanted to kind of understand their world and see it through their young eyes, if possible. So that sort of motivated me there. And I think for young people, um, they can find meaning, and, and company, in, and, and solidarity, because obviously, you know, the issues that plagued us 100 years ago are with us still, the forms are somewhat different, but we are still dealing with issues of race, and gender, and power, and international diplomacy, and questions of leadership, and all of these things are, are with us still. Sometimes I think we can see problems more clearly when we look at them through the remove of time than when we watch our
1: nightly news. Yeah, certainly true. Let's take another break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about another a couple of uh, Julie Berry's books and writing historical fiction and the value of history. We'll have more following this. A knock on the
2: door. Who's that? There's a doorbell. A raid by law enforcement. They have a police.
3: Yeah, we were shocked. Don't move, don't move, don't move. And a look inside an industry set up to provide care for seniors that's exploiting its workers.
4: I could do this for the rest of my life and not even scratch the surface of the wage theft and fraud that occurs here.
3: Next time on Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. What better way to celebrate Pie Day, March 14th, than with a free piece of Lucky Slice pizza pie? We're inviting you to join us, Utah Public Radio and Lucky Slice, We'll be hosting a special drive-thru event Sunday, March 14th, beginning at noon. We're going to be handing out a free piece of pizza to the first 250 people. All you have to do is drive through the UPR parking lot. We'll hand you your slice through your car window. Don't forget to mask up and head to upr.org for more details. The next Putumayo World Music Hour will explore the eclectic
4: music of today's Italy from the lively folk traditions of the countryside to
3: the sophisticated, studio-created grooves of the club scene. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Spotlight on Italy, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
1: What is climate change? How is it affecting our lives? And what can we do about it? We'll connect the dots, from energy to extreme weather, public health, the economy, agriculture, and more. Catch Climate Connections weekday mornings at 549 and 849 on Morning Edition, and afternoons at 348 during All Things Considered,
3: here on Utah Public Radio.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November of last year.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, We have uh, as our guest for the hour, Julie Berry, award-winning author of books for young adults and children. You can find her at julieberrybooks.com. Julie Berry, I want to talk about Passion of Adults next. Um, So this one, you go back to the, what is it, the 13th century?
2: That's right right. Southern France, Provence, as it would have been called at the time, um, which is larger than what we today call, you know, Provence. Um, yeah, so we, it was looking at the aftermath of the Albigensian Crusade that took place there, which I hadn't known a whole lot about before I started, you know, looking into it for a story idea. Uh,
1: so this, um, understand... Uh, that you got the idea for this from uh, listening to uh, lecture on tape was that was that the case?
2: That's right. Um, I, perhaps you're familiar with uh, the Great Courses Company, or I think it's also called the Teaching Company. Yeah, they produce lots of you, you know what I mean. Yeah, they produce lots of um, audio and video lecture series. College lecturers, you know, teaching on a particular topic, and just hundreds and hundreds of different courses and. I just love them. They they keep my mind alert and alive. Um, they, I you know listen to them while I'm doing the dishes or laundry or whatever or driving in the car, and uh, they're just a, a constant source of new ideas and new possibilities. The more that I learn, you know, the more material I have to work with. So I was listening to a course um, on the Middle Ages with a specific focus on witchcraft, um, heresy, millenarian movements. Magic, those sort of you know mystical elements you might say, mysticism was part of it, and so, as part of the unit on heresy, I, I first encountered the story of the Albigensian Crusade, and I was shocked because I had never heard of it before. and I thought, how have I reached this point in my life and you know received some sort of an education without ever having encountering this moment in time, which was so pivotal and yet you know so little understood? And of course, that starts ringing all my bells. <laughs> like it, maybe other people don't know about this too, and, and maybe you know that's an opportunity. Of course, a lot of people do. There've, there've been some other popular fiction titles about it, but um, I, I especially like to find you know great stories that are perhaps lesser known. That that's an, an opening for me.
1: There are, I guess, there are parallels between any period in history and today. There are definitely parallels between the 13th century, issues that are facing people then, facing people now. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. And I guess that's another, uh, you could file this under another uh, data point under uh, the value of
2: history. Absolutely. Well, the the real question at play in The Passion of Dulce has to do with religious power and with the, the entanglement of the church and the state, um, and w- when when the church has the power to you know mobilize the state as its arm of enforcement, then a whole new kind of tyranny becomes possible. And uh, and you know, of course, the thing is, people are never well. I won't say never, but <laughs> usually uh, people that carry out these these programs of of destruction and genocide, and, and certainly religious persecution, you know they feel they have a reason. They feel they have a righteous reason. Um, whether or not you know we would agree, um, they're not being villainous for villainy's sake. They are doing, I believe I said in the in the author's note, they are carrying out their painful duty for what they see as the greater good. So we have Dominican friars who are trying to. Purged the Lord's vineyard of the, the 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 stain of heresy. They called it foxes that were corrupting the Lord's vineyard, which is sort of a scriptural reference. So they believed that these people, who, as they saw it, held aberrant Christian beliefs, um, were a threat to the salvation of all the other good Christians, the good Catholics. And after you know various other attempts to sort of bring an end to to these. You know, rather harmless and benign religious practices had failed. Um, they they resorted first to war, and and then when that still did not eradicate the problem, as in kill all the heretics, they they implemented Inquisition. When we think of Inquisition, we tend to think of the Spanish Inquisition, but the Spanish Inquisition was a later manifestation of what first began here in Provence. In fact the manuals that were written in how to extract confessions and how to enact torture and how to interrogate victims and and catch them in their words were written during this period in 13th century southern France. And they became the the blueprint for the Spanish Inquisition, as well as for torture and interrogation methods that persist with us still and that were used by the Gestapo and the KGB. So it's really kind of chilling to think that there was a moment in time where Where human ingenuity invented interrogation, torture, and you know means of creating distrust and suspicion and fear it 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 really was an innovation at the time, and that's a a very frightening thought
1: yeah, it certainly is. We just have about three minutes left uh, I want to very briefly treat uh, the scandalous sisterhood of brickwill a, a place this is a uh, you know a, a comedy' a farce Um... I'll just read this uh, paragraph, the synopsis. Students of St. Ethelred's School for Girls face a bothersome dilemma. Their irascible headmistress, Mrs. Plackett, and her surly brother, Mr. Agotting, have been most inconveniently poisoned at Sunday dinner. Now the school will almost certainly be closed and the girls sent home unless these seven very proper young ladies can hide the murders and convince their neighbors that nothing is wrong. So this is set in Victorian England, right? The, what, uh, what research did you do here?
2: Well, this this book, Scandalous Sisterhood, is, is a lot of fun, and uh, it, it sort of draws from you know my love of Dickens and my love of sort of drawing room mysteries and you know Agatha Christie. Even of, of course, she was you know more contemporary. Um, so so I did a lot of research there, but I um, mean certainly Scandalous Sisterhood and my newest novel, Wishes in Wellingtons, which is also Victorian, uh, are. are very carefully researched in terms of trying to get the, the details of, of life and the world correct, but they're less, you know, treating with heavy historical subjects and more just having some Victorian fun. <laughs> so um, in, in both cases, you know, just having a grand old time. Scandalous Sisterhood is sort of a arsenic and old lace meets you know, girls boarding school and um, wishes in Wellington, is sort of, um, you know, Aladdin and his magic lamp meets, you know, a little princess, again, Victorian boarding school. You just, you know, it is a, a fountain whose waters fail not. <laughs> There's just an endless <laughs> amount of fun things you can do in a boarding school story. <laughs> so I, I do love the Victorian era for sure.
1: Um, so, the yeah, uh, mention again briefly the, the your latest book.
2: Wishes and Wellingtons. It's just out in hardcover from Sourcebooks, and it's the first of of a trilogy of three, so I'm working now on crime and carpet bags, and it is just a lot of fun. features a very feisty, combative protagonist named Maeve Merritt. She gets herself into all kinds of trouble, but she is, I think, a very endearing soul. So it's been really fun to share that with young people.
1: Yeah, that sounds fun. Uh, Well, you can find all of Julie Berry's books at her website, uh, julieberrybooks.com. Uh, Julie Barrett, it's uh, been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, Tom, thank you for having me on the show. It's always a treat.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone for listening to Access Utah. And now uh, we do this uh, monthly. We're pleased to bring you the latest uh, Dateline St. George commentary from John Taylor.
4: You know the warning you get in expensive stores, you break it, you own it? Well, it doesn't apply to national treasures in southwest Utah, They've been getting trashed by feral visitors during the last year. Don't call them tourists. These marauders are unencumbered by good intentions or fear of consequences. They're hell-bent on leaving sometimes indelible stains for the caring public and paid public servants to address. Maybe it's a jailbreak mentality from the pandemic, or a lifetime of bad manners never corrected. They're trying risky stunts in rock climbing and on ATVs. They're doing beastly things to man-made and natural relics. And they're leaving behind piles of human waste. Debris is spreading like measles along Interstate 15 as the pandemic has sidelined inmate road crews and citizen volunteers. There's plastic, plastic everywhere, along with bedding and the odd sack of potatoes. Volunteer rescuers are being overwhelmed by hikers, hang gliders, and campers, the capable and the clueless, who stumble into misadventures, injury, or death. And state and national parks like Zion and Bryce Canyon are being scarred by graffiti. A 200-year-old petroglyph was vandalized in Gunlock State Park near St. George in May 2020. The glyph was an image of a person riding a horse, likely done by an artist from a southern Paiute tribe. The rock was dug up, with no small effort, and pushed into the reservoir. The crazy people are a minority, but potent. This isn't on the scale of the Taliban blowing up thousand-year-old statues of Buddha in Afghanistan, but nothing so bad that it might not get worse. Consider these behaviors. Taking a 30 30 Winchester to blast rural road signs on a Friday night isn't lawful, but it isn't the same as reckless target shooting that starts a fire incinerating endangered Mojave Desert tortoises. Spray-painting a freight car on a railroad siding is wrong, but it isn't the same crime as toppling gravestones and scrolling vile slogans on houses of worship. Sure, southwest Utah is hungry for another business boom, but tourist boards and chambers of commerce need to fashion a potent public education campaign hinged on personal responsibility and consequences, and maybe include a few well-placed remote cameras. Maybe it's time to amend the familiar Utah brand to something like, Utah, life elevated, don't bring it down. For Dateline St. George, this is John Taylor wishing you a joyful day.
1: We well, thank John Taylor for those uh, commentaries. You can find past commentaries at our website, upr.org, upr.org. Uh, coming up uh, tomorrow, uh, we will recap the 2021 session of the Utah Legislature, which ended on Friday. We'll be talking with uh, Lieutenant Governor Deirdre Henderson. Uh, also with uh, Representative Angela Romero and Representative Brad Last and others. And uh, we'd love to know what you think uh, or thought about the uh, session that was Um, The legislation that you've had your eye on, you can uh, get your uh, comment to us at upraxcess at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com. That's the legislature tomorrow. Then on Wednesday, we'll be talking with Brian Alexander about his latest book, The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. He... uh, gives us a view of the overall American uh, medical uh, situation uh, through the eyes of a uh, small-town hospital, Bryan, Ohio. We'll be talking about uh, medicine, medical industry in America. Then on Thursday, Jason Gilmore and Charles Rowling. Jason Gilmore is a, a USU professor. They'll talk about their new book, Exceptional Me, How Donald Trump Exploited the Discourse of American Exceptionalism. That's coming up on Thursday. Hope you'll uh, stay tuned and uh, hope you'll tune in for Access Utah Daily, nine o'clock Monday through Thursday. Thanks for listening.
3: As the pandemic set in, many of us hunkered down at home, but traveling nurses had to hit the road, jumping from city to city treating coronavirus patients.
4: It's like playing Russian let. You're you're, you're risking your life to go in a
3: patient's room. I'm Ari Shapiro, traversing the country to treat COVID this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Join us today from 3 to 6.30 here on Utah Public Radio.